Hello, listeners. Just a heads up, we want to give a brief content warning before we dive into this episode. In this episode, we do talk about themes surrounding abuse as well as suicide. And so if that is not going to be comfortable for you to listen to, please feel free to skip this episode and join us next time. Welcome back to another episode of Ultra Hope Girls, the Danganronpa podcast. Today, we are closing out Ultra Despair Girls. That is wild. I have not processed that, but we will process it in this episode. Just so you know, this episode will spoil the entirety of Ultra Despair Girls. And without further ado, I'm Maddie. I'm Marin. And I'm Caroline. And we're the Ultra Hope Girls. Welcome to the Dong and Rumpa podcast. You're on the threshold of an amazing episode. Showtime. All right, everybody. Let's get into it. This one, I have a lot of like plot, like a lot happens, but it's like I don't have a lot of like spicy things to add to it. You know what right. I mean? It's, it's the yeah. final chapter plot dump that right. comes with every dong and game <laughs> like half the half the final chapter is oh like should we break the controller and then just having to select not to break it like eight times <laughs> <laughs> i kind of loved that section i guess we'll get into that but i yeah that was such a good time i was like ooh, what if we did break the controller <laughs> oh my god <laughs> ooh. well i can tell you what happens if we do Ooh, okay oh. okay so what happens is it's like Kamaru and you can tell by the voice acting that it's like she's sad that she did it but she's like I broke the controller and all the adults they they praised my name they loved me and then there's like a scene of like the cityscape and everything exploding because at that point you don't know what happens with the explosions yet you know so and they wanted to keep it ambiguous I'm sure so that it could happen at any point during that timeline of like Right, um, right. Selecting the two responses. Wow, that's interesting. Yes, and very morbid, as are a lot of things in this game. Because the implication there is that it's like the kids wearing the helmets are the ones exploding, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. their heads. <laughs> yeah. And this is just so. That's wow. Awesome. A lot of dark stuff in this game. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. I mean, it, it's like another level. I mean, we've talked about that, but it, it is just like so disturbing. Should we start from the top? Oh, yeah, let's, let's do it. take it from the yeah. top. So the chapter title, it's called Absolute Despair Girl. <laughs> and that's one of the songs in the album. So I'm assuming the song was made in honor of the chapter, or it could be vice versa. But that's the song that's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Is it? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why that's the title or you know, like, <laughs> that's not the vibe I really get from this final chapter, but, you know. That's so yeah, funny. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that like, whenever it plays in the background, I'm like, oh, yes, riff, riff legends. Like, ooh. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then we start off, like, right, kind of right where we left off with the giant Monokuma, which, I mean, right off the bat, I was like, this is just, like, fighting evil with the same evil like kind of like i i talked in the first episode i believe about like lord of the flies and how like when the boys leave the island it's like they're entering into a even greater version of the evil that they produced on this like mike in this microscopic scale on the island and so like this is i mean a literal representation of like the warship coming to pick them up from the island 
Yeah, it did make me laugh that all the little Monokumas were attacking the big one. But then I was kind of like, maybe that's the point because you have like the kids attacking the adults. And I don't know, like it does make sense in that way. But I just kind of found it funny in the moment. It reminds me of the like the would you rather thing where it's like, um, (laughs) would you rather fight 100 duck sized horses or one horse sized duck? I think I'd rather fight the duck. No, wait, that'd be a mistake. Oh, no. I think I'd rather fight the horses, because I also just want to see a horse that's that small, you know what I mean? What did I do to make all 100 duck-sized horses angry at me? I don't know, but you have to fight them. They're out for blood, and you have to fight them. (laughs) It's like Monokuma. They're being controlled. (laughs) No. No. Oh, man. Anyway, that's all. So also with that, like, we see the giant Monokuma attacking. The little Monokumas are attacking that. Everything's chaos. And then it pans to Monica, who's watching it all happen. And she's like, <laughs> And I could not <laughs> handle that. The amount of times that, like, the juxtaposition in this chapter, like, made me laugh out loud was so many times. And this is the first one of many. <laughs> yeah. She does not care. She literally never cares I yeah it's incredible I know her character is unreal and we will get to that I'm sure we will talk about her character more later um but yeah I have a fun reference I this happens at the top of the chapter I believe when Kamaru is chatting with Toko and Hiroko but it's like it could kind of be tossed anywhere so I'll just toss it in here um Kamaru says something about like a red string being tied to her pinky like, there's, like, a reference where it's, like, oh, yeah, I always have a red string tied to my pinky. That was really interesting. And so this, just for folks who don't know, this is a reference to um, Eastern Asian cultures. It's prevalent in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean cultures, this mythology of the red string. And it's tied between two people who, it's there, it's invisible. Um, but it's tied between two people who are destined to be together. And in Chinese culture, it's ankles. In Japanese, it's the female pinky and the male's thumb. And in Korean, it's both pinkies. Um, But as, like, times have passed since this legend was initially, like, created, it's mostly just acknowledged in in fingers now in all of the cultures. But um, it's really cool. And it's, like, two people who are destined to be together and soulmates in a way. And this is, like, what we see at the top of the chapter, which makes me think that this is directly tying to Kamaru and Toko as like friends and how they are like soulmates for each other like they are destined to be together and I can't believe I'm saying this and I don't ship them like I ship them as friends and I know like so many people are like but like obviously they're like they want each other and it's just not for me but that's okay we're out here vibing Um, but I also said it could also be Toko and Byakuya too at the end with her saying like you know oh like uh, our feelings together will never change and then he responds to that like but you know there's that connection there so so kind of from that first conversation I was curious if you thought um the main conflict from the game is it Toko and Kamaru versus the Warriors of Hope or Monica versus Nagito in terms of a general game overview and to kind of expand on that just for a second because we see the game through the eyes of Toko and Kamaru but the conflict doesn't stem from them necessarily. And so I, yeah, that's, that's kind of my question. Yeah. Cause in some ways they're just kind of caught in the middle of this larger thing that's going on. Yeah. I hear you. I mean, I would argue that it's Toko and Kamaru against Toa city 
because it's like not only Monica, but it's also Haiji who is like corrupted by what's going on, you know, and he was a bad person before, but like obviously a lot of more bad now that he's like been corrupted by money and and all this stuff and so I think it's more that because when I boil down like you know we talk in English class about like character versus society character versus self and like the different kinds of conflicts that arise like this is definitely like character versus society I would say um because you know Kamara is our protagonist so it is I, I think that is the the conflict there and it's also character versus self because she doesn't know if she wants to even get involved in the fir- first place but the fact she does would make me think that that is that those are the bad guys <laughs> <laughs> i like that a lot i i think i think i agree with you caroline i think it's a toko kamaru versus kind of toa group is like a very like what might be one of the biggest biggest conflicts there i like that couldn't have said it better myself versus society <laughs> that's all i could think of when i said that <laughs> speaking of toa group my big hot take for this game is that this is actually just the Lorax in another version, and Haiji is O'Hare creating an air problem and then stealing air. Literally, that is so true. Oh my god. Yeah, okay, but actually, though, I had a note about that, because um, when it comes to the whole thing of, like, uh, the whole theme of, you know, this very powerful group is, like, causing problems so that it can then solve those problems and be, like, all like you know worshipped for like solving the problems um that to me was very reminiscent of 1984 Mm. by orwell because that is like one of the key things that happens in that novel is that the party like this you know terrible totalitarian government rallies the people against this enemy nation who they're at war with and this enemy nation is like bombing the streets and like flying planes overhead and killing people but like one of the twists of the book, sorry, 1984 spoilers, um, just heads up. One of the twists of the book is that it's, there's actually no war. There's no enemy nation that they're at war with. The party it is bombing its own people and making up a war so that it can then defend against the enemy and have everyone stay loyal because um, they kind of rally behind the cause. And so it reminded me a lot of that. You know, I'm really glad I have ADHD because I completely dissociated after you said mild spoilers. Because <laughs> I've never read that book and I want to. Oh wow, okay. nice! <laughs> but I totally like wasn't paying attention after that, and I I, I didn't hear it a word you said. So cool. thank you, mental health. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I I was gonna say something regarding that. Oh, like I I think in general, like this game, which makes it a lot different from the others, is it's like commentary direct commentary on our society like because we're there seeing everything and like toa group and its role that it plays in this chapter is you know a commentary on how big corporations you know sometimes turn a blind eye and it does more harm than good you know to the people who either work under them or the society that they're a part of yeah and that just goes back to like like money and love and money but i think money more so is like one of the biggest like corruptors of of human beings It reminds me a little bit of, uh, like, yeah, with the corporations and everything, just creating problems to solve them and to get more money. It reminds me of how Apple was just like, hey, oh, no, look, the new iPhone doesn't have a headphone jack and a charging cable. Oh, no, this is a horrible (laughs) problem. Don't worry, you can just buy this $50 adapter, and that will solve the problem. And everyone was like, yay! (laughs) 
No, okay. That's no. Not, not everyone was like, yay. But I just thought that was the dumbest thing. I was like, okay, well, just keep it how it was. Like, yeah. got rid of the headphone jack. That's funny. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry, this tangent, but that reminded me of that. Going off of poor problem solving, can we talk about Shirakuma's idea of how they can fix the problem? They Shirakuma was like, okay, we have this problem. The adults want to attack the kids. You know what we should do? We should take away the kids' army. Because these raging adults will stop then? I don't know. I just A lot of the conflict resolution in this last chapter really didn't feel thought out to me very much like there's there are a lot of times where people were like oh I have this solution and it's like I could name 10 problems with that or like <laughs> even at the end when when they're like you have to decide to break or not break the controller and Kamari was like I'm gonna save them both and Toko was like yeah and Marin <laughs> playing the game is like how <laughs> <laughs> I don't know Maddie was also like how okay okay Caroline Right. Well, I think that the point of that is like, one, it's like defying making a choice because like, okay, so in Buffy, there's this episode where um, a character, I'll keep it pretty vague so there's not like huge spoilers, but there's a character who wants to become a vampire because he uh, is dying of cancer and he like wants to like live. He wants to be alive. And Buffy says a quote where it's like, he says, I don't have a choice. And she says, you do have a choice. You don't have a good choice, but you have a choice. And like by her, literally, even like the ending of the second game, their choice is like, we're not going to make a choice. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, and we didn't criticize that too much because it ends in a way that we like. And in this way, it's like, I, I like the ending too, because it's like, I have hope that there is a way to save both, whether it be manually taking the heads off of all the children or, you know, because when I was thinking, okay, save both. And I was logically thinking like, how are they going to do that? And I was like, well, Kamaru has the patience now and the like the drive to do to go through that painstaking process. And now Future Foundation and her brother are behind her and they know that, you know, they're that she and Togo are trying to do their best. So they're not gonna start like a war. You know, so it avoided that too. I totally agree. I actually liked the ending too. I think it would have been horrible if she had picked one of the two options, but I don't know. I think it was mainly just like because I I don't see it as a cop out. I don't either. Yeah, I think it was a lot of the pre-decision options that bothered me, which is I think a lot of what uh, Kamaru herself feels throughout is everyone is telling her that one very dramatic option is the option to take. There are no other options, but none of theirs make complete sense. None of the things that they're presenting her are totally secure in what the future will be and so I agree like I think at the end not choosing one of those big options is the best option because like none of the other ones were founded on much but it was like kind of frustrating sometimes to have to watch like Shirakuma be like let's just take away one of the armies and it's like did you think through that like (laughs) yeah I know and it also I mean we'll talk about Monica as a villain I'm sure too but like Monica had her hand in every pot Either choice Kamaru made, she had pre-planned her making that choice and knew how to deal with it. And so, like, that could be part of it, too, that Kamaru's like, I know if I make one of these choices, I'm going to have to, like, deal with your consequences. So the only option is to not be what Monica expects her to do or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really true. I I feel like 
in in some ways the ending of this game actually for me in some ways kind of did feel like a cop out but i hear what you guys are saying for sure because i think there is value in the message that when you when someone is telling you that you're faced with a choice between this or that and you can't have it any other way like there often is another way to do things you know and and is not always black and white like that. So I do think that is a good message. But yeah, I I don't know exactly how she's planning on like, you know, hanging out in Toa City and fixing all of that. Maybe I would feel like it was less of a cop-out if there was like more of a plan there. But like, I don't know if that's the point of the game. Like maybe I'm just like being nit- nitpicky, but like, yeah. <laughs> I have a quick note about Hiroko. When like all the adults are starting to riot, all of the adults are like pulling out weapons. They're preparing to go like hurt some kids, which is a horrible phrase that I never thought I'd say in my life. But you go and you can talk to Hiroko and give her some of those hit list cards. And I, this was another one of those moments with the juxtaposition of what's happening in the world and how the characters were reacting, um, like the Monica one, because there's things exploding in the background and you start to talk to Hiroko and she's like, what's up, Toko and Fufu? And it's like... <laughs> so calm like, oh i loved it <laughs> i love her i think i i like playing this game like i was like yep like she's she's great like i i didn't appreciate her enough the first time so i have a actually it's two very small notes about um the interaction between nagito and monica and also kurakuma at the beginning of this chapter and so the the first one is just a funny moment uh, when Nagito is like preparing he's like I'm gonna like I'm leaving bye Monica and Monica's like wait you can't leave and he's like I'm leaving um, Nagito says by the way before I leave there's something I should tell you and then Kurakuma says you're finally gonna come out of the closet yeah. <laughs> I was like oh my god right yeah mm. I mean, anyway yes yep <laughs> confirmed <laughs> so it's just a funny moment but also, when Nagito is in that moment, in, in this same scene, he also is talking about wanting to let despair flourish and like rise to full power before tearing it and burning it all down until only hope remains. Kurakuma says something interesting. He says, oh, so you want to burn the crops and salt the earth? And I was like, that sounds like a reference. Um, it's the Bible. And it is, it is. It is a biblical reference. And I looked it up and it's also... So this is what Wikipedia says about the term salting the earth. Salting the earth or sowing with salt is the ritual of spreading salt on conquered cities to symbolize a curse on their re-inhabitation. Um, and says it actually originated in the um, ancient Near East and became established in the Middle Ages. And I was like, that's interesting. It's kind of an interesting way to take it too, because is that a metaphor? Um, it's It's an interesting way to look at it, I think, because does Nagito maybe see himself as like conquering the city because you know symbolizing a curse on the city's re-inhabitation is I don't know it, it makes me think a little bit of the of you know Toa City and like everything's burning down and everything you know it's being conquered by despair and like is anything ever is hope ever going to be able to come back to this city I don't know and a lot of that is Nagito's doing jumping off of that I you know, there are a lot of antichrist aspects to Nagito. And one of the things in the Bible is they compare Jesus to the salt of the earth. And so because of that, like, you know, you are the salt of the the earth. earth. Look up Matthew the musical. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, like, like that could also be connected to that because he, you know, he does things of his own devising, you know, he, he thinks he has divine control over, you know, his power and his, you know, whatever. So yeah, that's wild. But if that salt has lost its flavor, it, it ain't got much in its, its favor. It's like over Zoom with the delay, we're all facing <laughs> at different times. <laughs> I hope that that stays in. I, I want it to oh stay my in God. so bad. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Circling back to Hiroko, um, when you give her one of the cards, you give her Kyoko's grandfather on a card. And it's very interesting watching Toko's reactions to the cards that are presented to Hiroko, because she generally always gives an anecdote about the character that it represents. Um, And with Kyoko's grandfather's card, she says, real detectives are no good at all. Well, it's not that actual detectives are no good, more like most situations don't require a detective at all. And that was really interesting to me, because if she is referencing Kyoko and Kyoko's role in the first game, it's interesting to see how Toko views Kyoko, like, through her eyes. Yeah, it just makes me wonder, like, how the kids thought of Kyoko, I guess, in that first game. Because Makoto does solve most of the murders, but Kyoko is a very essential part to some of those cases. And so, I don't know, it was just a disrespect that I didn't anticipate disrespect it was a disrespect <laughs> you dare disrespect maddie's waifu oh <laughs> um did anyone get the chance to i can't believe i didn't do this to investigate what happens if you give hiroko the card for toko stink bug no because you don't get a chance to talk to hiroko after you get that card <gasps> yeah what a shame well I you know. could hypothetically circle back right and go back to her if once you get it interesting potentially if the doors let you back through which they should i think they do right let's look it up now okay so so the first thing i want to note about kamiko's card kamiko is the name of the stink bug um (laughs) status is alive location is unknown how long do stink bugs even live i'm not sure can we look that up (laughs) hell yeah but okay wait, i'll read this if one of you wants to look up a stink bug's life uh, i'm going lifeline. to look up the lifespan of the stink okay. bug right now okay so when kamiko's hit list entry is discussed with Hiroko, toko this by the way is from dong and rumpa wiki toko gets unusually emotional showing just how strongly she cared for the bug she is offended when kamiko is called a bug and she calls kamiko her dear insect friend quote a friend sect end quote she believes that Kamiko is a special insect that can understand her feelings, but Hiroko and Kamaru make her realize that Kamiko is just a normal bug. Nevertheless, Toko misses her pet dearly and wishes to see her again. That's so cute. <laughs> I looked up the lifespan of stink bug, eight months. Oh my gosh, that's longer wow. than I thought. So this stink bug she became friends with, we'll say, at Hope's Peak, this stink bug has lived at a bad point in time. I know. <laughs> like, it's wow. basically survived the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. oh. Wait, okay, so I have to I have to pose this question as well. All those people that we found on the cards were all the, the Warriors of Hope hostages, right? For these these people. Mm-hmm. 
did they just like were they just keeping the stink bug like in one of the like rooms of that hotel that Kamaru was stuck in like I don't understand <laughs> like so it, so it could wake up every morning read a little magazine <laughs> I really need to see art of Kamako the stink bug reading a small magazine in a, in the oh. apartment <laughs> oh my god in like a bug sized like but but the thing is Kamaru was trapped in there for one year Stinkbugs no. don't live that long. <laughs> well, Maddie, I will offer that stinkbugs don't live that long because humans kill them. So it's like the average life is eight months, but like if there's no human interference to like smoosh them. Then Comico the stink bug lives forever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um, where are we? <laughs> um, okay, my next things are in the big building with the robots and the bell and all that. Same with the notebooks of the parents. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to start? I I feel like I've been chatting a bunch. Sure. Um. Yeah. I only have that. Just like we see those notebooks for every warrior of hope except Monica. Um. Yeah. Like the, from their parents' perspective, which I think is very interesting because, like, you know, it was already clear that these children was were traumatized, and like this really solidified that and i think that's part of why the creators put this in here is because you know for it's easy to see these kids as as villains because they're the people who've been attacking us but like this kind of solidifies the fact that it's not black and white it's more complicated than that because these kids are kids and so you know they they they're capable of change but yeah yeah um heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking to read these notes but i will say um we do get to see a note from, I'm pretty sure it's Haiji about Monica. And I think I have a screenshot of it somewhere. And I, if it's okay for me to do so, I wanted to talk about that note a little bit. I, the implication is that it's written by Haiji. I'm pretty sure that is correct. And it is titled Alien. Like that's the, the title of the note. It's just called Alien. And I thought that was an interesting title to me because it almost kind of fits when you think about Monica and like some aspects of her appearance. Like she's got these green hair, it's green eyes, like those weird, like kind of patterns in her eyes of like the lines that I, I said at the very beginning of the game, I thought looked a little like swastikas, but now I think they look like, um, like robot eyes, almost like they're going to shoot laser beams at you. And just her creepiness. Like I I almost feel like the creators of the game were maybe trying to make, make her a bit, alien-like so it's interesting to me that you have to like ring a bell in order to get through these doors to get to you know the final place or whatever um and I was like why why did they include that you know what what was the difference between just blocking the door and you know ringing a bell but I did a little bit of research and bells have a very strong like symbolic nature to fighting away evil spirits um in a lot of Uh, religions, evil spirits are thought to hang around doorways, waiting for a chance to like slip inside a home. That is a a theory in some religions. And so some visitors would ring a bell in order to enter the home. That's, you know, maybe part of doorbells. I know doorbells are to alert you that someone's at the door, but you know, potentially that's a part of the old time thing. Mm. Um, So it's interesting to me that to clear um, two of the kids, two of the, you know, potentially deceased kids' spirits, you have to ring a bell, almost like letting those kids that you faced in the past, the Warriors of Hope, like, stand behind you while you go and face the final one. I don't know. I just thought it could be kind of an interesting symbolic note. Yes, and going off of that, though, um, 
in the Magician's Nephew, which is the first book in the um, Narnia series, uh, Diggory and Polly, who are the two main characters in that book, they um, go to the first world and they ring uh, a bell that breaks the frozen spell of that land, which is what awakens the White Witch. And then they accidentally bring her to Narnia. And so it's almost like that is like awakening the spirits of who these kids like used to be in a way of like, they remember what it was like to to be those people and they are feeling sympathy in a way for their actions that they've done so they're not frozen as these like caricatures of like the fighter and the the mage and not the mage um monica is evil but like you know the <laughs> not <laughs> you know nagisa and the priest and stuff and so now they've breaking through that because like by us learning more about their pasts we're physically breaking our frozen vision of them being like the bad guys yeah of the show yeah the show the game <laughs> yeah yeah um i have like screenshots of the notes um from each of the parents of the kids just so i could like refer back to them if i had any thoughts and just looking back over them again i'm just so sad like they're these are just so hard to read but it also strikes me that like like the different ways that the parents are justifying what they're doing and like the things that they're telling themselves and like writing about why they are treating their kids like this I mean like Jotaro's mom it basically talks about like oh there's so much I can do if if my son never existed if I had never had him I could have done all these things I could have like accomplished all these things um and then it says instead my entire life is just a platform for my son's life and like the resentment there in that statement it's just and then the ending of it is so so sad talking about how she wants him to die god and i i i hear you caroline it's like it makes me think you know i don't think jotaro is a bad guy because can you imagine being a child and finding a note like that from your own parent about you and reading that I mean I can't imagine and like the fact that these notes are like in the this building and like in the rooms of these kids means that they found them they've probably read them and this has probably fueled their anger towards their parents and their adults Kotoko's mom talks about how she says I'm doing this all of this for the love of my child I do it for her sake so that she can sparkle forever no matter how much she hates me or how much society will beat me up for it, I know my actions are right. Like, she genuinely is trying to, like, tell herself that she was doing the right thing. I do have to say about Jotaro, you know how you find, like, the cards from the kids around to, like, more of those playing cards with the kids' names on them? Jotaro's is so different from everyone else. Monster is like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, like, I need to be better, I'm sorry. And Jotaro's literally says... <laughs> I'm the prince of inspiration. The strongest land animal is the hippo. <laughs> Buddy, what is going on in your head? Oh my god. That's amazing. <laughs> oh my god. Love him. Oh, what was I just going to say? Oh, I was going to say something. A thought that occurred to me at one point replaying this game. Marin, when you were like, oh, I don't know if I want to adopt Jotaro because he killed so many people. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> but I will say, do we have any proof that any of those kids actually killed adults? They killed their own parents. Yes. And um, Masaru had the pile of dead bodies that he claimed. That is true. Yeah. Like, bodies are everywhere, absolutely. And I do believe that they killed their own parents. 
but I was like, I don't know if we actually have any proof that they, like, do we have proof that Jotaro killed all the people who were, like, the dead bodies in his diorama? Do we have proof that Masaru killed all the people on that pile? I don't know. It's, it's, maybe they did, maybe the implication is just that they did, and I'm just, like, thinking too deeply into it, but I couldn't help but wonder. I think the reason that I believe it is because Monica says, you guys killed all those people for me. Like you did exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm, and like, okay. it's not that I trust Monica, but I do trust that in things like that, she's saying the truth, you know, gotcha. like it, it might not be a good truth, but I, I think she normally wouldn't lie about stuff like that. I was going to say something also about just like, I mean, they did kill their parents. So at what point are the numbers, right? They, they did commit a murder that we know about. So it's like, yeah, they committed this murder. Would it even matter that they killed even more? Yes, but like, I, you know what I mean, though. Yeah. Like, um, I have one more note about the note from Nagisa's dad. The this note talks about, you know, it's very, it's very academic. It's very detached. It's very cold in the the style of writing when he's talking about Nagisa. He's like, ah, oh, yes, the test subject. Blah 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 blah. Very dehumanizing. He also at the very end says. Um, if I do not obtain any desirable results with the experiment, I will conclude that the problem lies with the subject and change my experimental target, which is interesting. And I think it raises a question. If he, ch- if he was going to change experimental targets and pick someone other than Nagisa to like be trying all these things out on, did Nagisa have a sibling? Who Was there someone else that might have been the new target yeah i don't know if i had to guess i'd say that his parents would have another child and try again because he like you said is very cold calculated and i don't think he would i uh, i don't know how to say this without it sounding weird but i don't think he would take the risk of having the child come from a different family and not being able to control some of those factors if Mm -hmm. that makes sense yeah which sounds again so cold and like horrible but i do think that's how his dad would see the situation i i only had the note about that it's sad and also that like like nagisa's parents don't even refer to him as like a person that was yeah so yeah he's not a human being he's like a lab rat so here we find out that all of the helmet kids are brainwashed which you know i think we had kind of proposed as an idea in some of these past chapter episodes but it is interesting so now I have to take away my 60-40 on the kids, unfortunately. Oh, man. I know, I know. I'll change it to 50-50. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but that's oh like, goodness. I was wondering that, like, as I was watching this the first time, I was like, how did they convince all these kids? Like, I would never do that. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like if I was a kid, I would never do that, like, at all. Speaking of the kids, I did translate the song that they sing you know the one that sounds kind of like a little camp rhyme going around when you're like doing the monokuma rooms and stuff like that and it's very terrifying the song so the words are let's kill merrily we don't need adults can we make a hundred corpses let's have a competition if there's monokuma we are invincible let's play with monokuma always let's kill with a smile we killed all the adults let's gather the corpses and make mountains graveyards of adults Hunt, hunt, Monokuma. Torment, torment, Monokuma. If we all sing together, the blood will overflow. Let's play with Monokuma always. 
let's kill together. Adults are dirty. Can we make a mountain with a thousand corpses? If there's Monokuma, it's a paradise for children. Wow, so pretty. Bite, bite, Monokuma. Stab, stab, Monokuma. If we all sing cheerfully, the blood will overflow. With Monokuma, let's have a boisterous celebration. Let's play with Monokuma always. Let's play with Monokuma always. Wow. Horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't help but laugh because it's so absurd. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My next note is Kamara seeing the ghost. Mine is too. (laughs) Oh my god. I, this scene was just like just like everything about it like it was just so random but also like in the best way like I wasn't mad about it like it wasn't just like completely unjustified um also Toko's the power of Christ compels you (laughs) my favorite moment in in this entire game but one of the things I think is really cool about that moment in particular is the fact that we kind of see how Kamaru and Toko differ in their beliefs like I think Kamaru is someone who is very willing to these supernatural things that defy logic like faith in in something that doesn't necessarily have a grounded like explanation but like she still believes in like the occult or ghosts um and that's just what faith is like is oftentimes it's like what you believe that might not be like real to everyone but it's real to you and like you know that kind of thing um and then toko is not and that's why she can't see or hear what's going on is because she doesn't believe in it but because they're together Kamaru can hear for Togo and be a vessel through which like to influence Togo by her like beliefs. So not only is Ultra Despair Girls the Lorax, but it is also Polar Express. <laughs> yes. I have to say I I hate to be this person. I hate to be the Debbie Downer of the group, but like I wasn't a huge fan of this scene. <laughs> I am sorry. I, yeah, I don't love this scene. I it's just like I mean yes it's supposed to be weird like the whole game is weird but it just felt like really out of place and like not in line with the rest of the game and I also was kind of like you know Kamaru gets all this information from the ghosts of Tokuichi Toa about like Monica and Hygiene their relationship and it just felt like an info dump that like the game makers needed some way to like present this information and they just like didn't know how else to do it so they you know use like the ghost possession like yeah I don't know it didn't seem like there was a purpose to it other than to be another kind of like info dump and I just didn't love it because it was like very it, it didn't feel in line with the rest of the game's style to me I hear what you're saying. It is sort of an ex machina for that. Like, definitely. I I agree. Um, However, having, like, I hated this scene the first time. I was like, oh my God, this is like, this tonally is just totally different and it it doesn't make any sense. But after (laughs) replaying the game, I think that I feel like it is a little bit more justified because this is a conversation threaded throughout about with Toko and Kamaru about the occult. And maybe those were dropped in there because this moment happened and they were like we need to justify this somehow real quick let's add some stuff about the occult before but i do hear what you're saying i I was of that opinion before we played it again additionally with all of the other parents of the warriors of hope we get a little montage of their voice them speaking in the cut scenes that we see with the kids when they're younger and like during the trauma whereas with monica we never get that her her dad um is is deceased you know when we meet him and so I think the only way really that we get to see how he is as a person 
um, versus just how Monica describes him or how Haiji describes him is through that, um, that conversation, because he says some pretty aggressive things about Monica while he's possessing Kamara. So it's not like he's like a saint and sitting there like, oh, she's so great. Like she never did anything wrong. No, he's right. pretty mean about a lot of stuff. And so in a way, I do think it serves the point of equating the time that we get with the kids' parents. Um, yeah, mm. that, but that's, I agree with you. It was a little out of place. Like, they probably could have had, in Monica's explanation, a small cutscene like the other ones. But um, yeah, I do think it served a little purpose. So one thing that is just a really quick reference is um, uh, Kotoko says, even the worthy Homer sometimes nods. And this is an idiom I had never heard before. I was like, what is that? And so uh, Homer, I, I was going to say, obviously, no. Um, Homer is the uh, author or authors of the Odyssey. We don't really know who initially wrote it. It's just, um, that's the name that scholars decided to use for Homer. Um, and basically the idiom means even the best uh, at their craft make mistakes. Like that's the the point of that. And so, um, I don't know why nodding is the mistake, but anyway. Um, but I think in a way she is talking about Monica, like in like indirectly here, because like Monica seems to have this perfectly chiseled in just the way she wants to. It's like hopeless, like, you know, and then obviously there's a loophole that's found and they figure out how to like defeat her anyway. Um, also, I think Kotoko has a crush on Monica. I, I don't know if we talked about this. You, you don't, you guys don't think so? I feel like it's so obvious. I think she hates Monica. Well, I think she does, but I think that like before, like she has she had a crush on her. That's interesting. So I personally think, and I didn't really think this until the second playthrough this chapter, so very late. I don't think Kotoko ever liked Monica. I think it was an act from the start because she does say that. She says it's an act and you could be like, okay, she's a little kid. Who's going to admit defeat? Like, I totally see that 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 uh, path. But the way that she acts when she's putting on an act is how we see her for most of the game. When she is not putting on an act, it's very aggressive and very, you know, hurt and like kind of just very riled up. Whereas, I don't know, I just... It was, uh, I just kind of like the idea that Kotoko was never fooled by it. And uh, maybe that's not fair because uh, Monica is the mastermind, but I like that timeline. Yeah, a lot. Right. I, I hear you. I do. If she like was, was fooled by it at the beginning, I think that there is some evidence there that she has a crush on Monica. You know, she's young, so, you know, but people have crushes when they're young. It's cute, you know. Um, but anyway, also, I wanted to talk about the name of the blimp, which is Excalibur, which is a reference to King Arthur. Oh, yeah. Um, it's pretty racking. Uh, this is a reference to basically Arthur's weapon of choice, which was foundationalized, if that's even a word, in The Sword and the Stone, um, which is, you know, a Disney movie, so you may have seen the movie. Um, but basically... Only the true successor to King Arthur is able to pull out the sword in the stone. And I think it's very interesting because this is coupled with the concept of the successor for Junko and Oshima, who is set up to be Kamaru, and we'll probably get more in depth about that later. But I think it's very interesting that in a way, like, because Kamaru was supposed to be the successor, only she is able to destroy what Monica's built 
in in a way. Um, so yeah, it's quite literally pulling the sword out of the stone. Yeah, I love that. Oh my god! Also, there is a moment before where Kamaru is teaching Toko how to not be annoying, and I have a note that says Kamaru teaching Toko not to be annoying is like the blind leading someone who has forty twenty vision. So. <laughs> it's time for the Kamaru roast. <laughs> I actually don't have much. I don't have much to roast Kamaru about today, to be honest. <laughs> um, I liked her for a lot of it, honestly. That little section that Caroline you just mentioned was my least favorite part of Kamaru in Chapter Five. <laughs> my least favorite part of Kamaru, but yeah, I thought she was. I thought she was pretty cool this round. Other than that. I have a note about Kamaru and kind of her character development. And it's just one very interesting thing that stood out to me is how her voice changes from the start to the end of the game. Like if you, if it really struck me at the moment before she and Toko entered the door, that is like the final boss fight door, as they say, it looks like that. And then, you know, they find Monica in there. In that moment is when it really struck me that like her voice is like, you know, if you listen at that moment and then listen back to the very beginning of the game, her voice goes from like a million octaves higher to like a lot lower and sounding like an actual like human person. No, that's me and I. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> I, I will say her voice goes from like really, really high, like very young girl to like a much lower, like more mature sounding voice. Like there's a very dramatic change. Um, but it's really good. And I wanted to give a little shout out to um, Sheremy Lee, the voice actress for Kamaru, because the change is like subtle and it's gradual throughout the course of the game. It's not like this sudden shift. And so it's really like this, you know, gradual like growth of, you know, and character development for Kamaru that I thought was really cool. And yeah, I know you don't, you guys aren't the biggest fans of Kamaru, but I wanted to give props to the voice actor, which I'm sure you guys can relate to. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it's funny. I, I did an audition today for voiceover, and one of the characters I auditioned for was a mature, young, like young teen girl who's like fifteen. And it's like I remember, like I remembered this moment, and it sort of inspired how I did the voice because she's like cutesy. Like her character design is very adorable, but like she definitely is very like. Hermione Granger-ish in a way where she like kind of knows what's going on and like is like okay guys this is what we need to do so I just had one little quick note about um the fact that we get to after you know shortly after finding those four notes from each kid's parent except for Monica and we just get to see like kind of the other perspective you know it's like we get to see almost the kids' responses to their parents and I don't know if these are like direct responses to those letters, but they are journal entries from the kids, you know, about their trauma. And I think that by far the most heartbreaking one to me was Katoko's um, when she talks about how she can't like stand up for herself. She can't like, you know, she has to go with it because she doesn't want to make mommy cry. And like how that's what hurts most is when she makes her mom cry. That just I mean it's it's so it's so real you know because I think that a lot of people maybe have the perception that like I'll tread carefully here but um when it comes to child abuse domestic abuse things like that I think a lot of people have the perception that it's like 
more of a black and white thing than it actually is. And like, if you're in an abusive situation, like, oh, well, why don't you just get out? Why are you staying with this person? Like, blah, blah, blah. Why anything? Like, don't you hate them? Like, why are they treating you like that? But it is very like common for people to still love their abusers, you know? And it's that, that that's really real. And I just, the note from Kotoko really was hard to read, but I thought it was very, um, I thought it was really real. You know, I thought it was really human. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But before that, a brief announcement from us, the Ultra Hope Girls. We wanted to let all of you listeners know that two weeks from today, October 25th, we will not be releasing an episode. We will be taking a little break. But fear not, because the two weeks right after that, November 8th, we will have a new episode for you all. And we will be back to our normal bi-weekly schedule. If you miss us in the meantime, please feel free to check out our Patreon because we will have bonus content happening there, and you can get access to that bonus content for as little as two bucks a month. Also, please feel free to leave us a voice message at anchor.fm if you have questions for us or thoughts or comments or just anything at all. We would love to hear from you, and you will also have a chance to be featured in our season finale episode. Anyway, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we will be right back after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, everybody. Caroline here with a pretty exciting announcement. So I, separate from the other Ultra Hope girls, am offering some online virtual classes in things such as writing, because, you know, I'm the ultimate literary girl, and performing, and also some clubs and classes virtually via my own school, which I founded, called The Spilling Ink School. You can check that out at thespillinginkschool.com. I'm offering tutoring and college essays. I'm offering, you know, piano classes and all that jazz. So definitely check it out. It's a good time. And I will also be offering some clubs and classes that are Danganronpa related via OutSchool. So I'll keep the links all in the description. They are for people under 18, so ask your parents before checking it out. But yeah, I'm excited to potentially have some listeners in my classes, and I wanted to let you know that that's going on. So thanks so much in advance for checking it out, and I look forward to teaching some of you. So Monica's robot is called the Black Suspirian, and that is a reference to the Three Mothers, which is an Italian-made trilogy of supernatural horror films. It consists of Suspiria, Inferno, and the Mother of Tears. Um, Like, each film deals with one of those three people who are called mothers, and they are a three set of ancient witches whose powerful magic allows them to manipulate world events on a global scale. All right, so we're already thinking, Monica, world events on a global scale. But her character, the person that she picked, Black Suspirian, is the Lady of Sighs 
the master of illusion, and when she was defeated, she was said to have immobile limbs growing out of her own, which again reminds me a lot of Monica, our dear Monica, who is in a wheelchair. I mean, granted, her limbs are very mobile, but, you know, she gives off the illusion of having immobile limbs, and that character, Suspirian, was thought of, it was named Death Personified, and so I think that Monica really <laughs> went for it with her robot name. I've said this for like all of the kids, but all of their robot names really link back to the kids and who they either want to be, how they see themselves, or how like the world sees them. And with Monica, I'm not quite sure if it's how she sees herself or how the world sees her, but it is such a good connection, like a master of illusion, death personified. I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. So good job, yeah. Monica. Wow. That's so good. I, I think like my, so every episode I've done an archetype that matches with a warrior of hope because all their names are very directly linked to an archetype. And so this one, Monica's is the mage, which is another version of the magician archetype um, and super interesting stuff, you guys. It's so the magician's motto is I make things happen. And their core desire is to understand the fundamental laws of the universe and their greatest fear is unintended negative consequences. And their strategy is to develop a vision and live by it. Um, but they can become manipulative, which is one of their weaknesses. And their talent is finding win-win situations, which I think is so interesting. Because Monica has a plan for both options of the controller. That's very she, true. She's looking for a win-win for herself, you know what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, yeah that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Wow. It fits her wow. perfectly. I also have a note in all caps that says, Hi, G, why even if there's a small chance we'd risk killing children, would you do this, you idiot? I know. Hi, yep. not helpful I, through any I of this. I just hate him oh my so God. much. Literally, Kotoko, I think it's Kotoko, says, like, the, the kids aren't capable of this, or maybe it's Kamaru. And he says, capable or not, that's what happened. And I was like, that makes no sense. <laughs> like, listen to yourself. I know. God, it's like, it's so unhelpful. Like, the whole, every time he spoke in this last scene, I was like, can you not? <laughs> but I actually had a note as well about the boss battle. Um, not the final boss battle, but the pre-final boss battle with um, Monica's robot. <laughs> um, so I, you know, the, this boss battle is a little bit different from the others, not just because, well, I mean, so Kurakuma is like piloting the robot from within. And, but also because Monica herself is kind of like part of the robot, she, there's this little like, you know, throne mounted on the robot that she's kind of hanging out on. She's not just like at a distance with a remote control. And so this boss battle felt to me a little bit more like you're actually fighting her rather than fighting like a proxy of her like it was with the other kids. Yeah, and I, I can't help but wonder if that is maybe a little bit intentional um, because she's like the truly evil one of this group, I would say. She objectively is is the most evil. But also the fact that we got to read all these notes from the parents and the journals of the other four kids and learn like all the details of everything that happened to them and like all those heartbreaking things we don't really get any of that detail for Monica I also wonder if that is intentional because you know if we're not supposed to feel as much empathy for her really because she is this final boss that we have to defeat and you know empathy gets in the way of like 
the doing the battle more directly with her this time I would say than with the other kids so I couldn't help but think about that I actually have a note that goes pretty well with that um in the boss battle I didn't really feel like I agree with you basically is I don't think she was looking for empathy because I think I think she wanted to lose you know we we see that she's like oh darn here's the controller with no effort to (laughs) keep it on my person um but like you could tell that in the battle in a weird way because of her battle cries. You know, that's another thing that I've noted with a lot of the kids is like, what what are they saying during this fight? And with her, it's a lot of, this goes out to that kid who I can't remember who was a hero. This goes out to the girl who like did something. I can't remember what she says about Kotoko, but like, it's very much mindless I didn't take the time to research this. I'm not putting my heart into these things. Also, Monica would never spend her last words on someone else. True. I was like, this girl knows that this is Danette. Very true. That's a good observation. Honestly, the ending of this game, I think, is very strong. I would argue one, one of the strongest in the series. Like, I think that they tie the loose ends up very well in a way where it's a satisfying villain. Like, we, like, have seen her be bad the whole time, which I almost prefer over the, like, oh, JK, Hans is the villain in Frozen, like, you know, <laughs> or whatever, like, it's Frozen spoiler. <laughs> no, no um, but we see how she did everything, and, like, as she's revealing the information, it's like, oh, yeah, like, remember that thing that happened? Like, that directly connects. It's not just, like, a plot dump of, like, stuff we didn't know about over and over and over again like the um like the second game I think is so bad with the plot dump at the end because it's like there's not a lot that's like oh yeah like connect that back to like the first trial with like or whatever you know like this it's like you see the the little seeds throughout that we follow and you know at the end and she's just such a good villain because she doesn't miss a beat she has her fingers in every pot of everything and knows everything that's going on like you are 10 how how are you this smart it's kind of terrifying so yeah you know I'm starting to change my tune on that a little bit I definitely think I'm starting to agree with you guys more about her being a really good villain I know I didn't I didn't put her very high on the tier list but like I might be changing my mind a little bit because I see a lot of those things that you're of what you're talking about on upon this replay I do see a lot of those things And it kind of reminds me, we've talked about like Jotaro's artwork from the past, and he painted Monica as Sleeping Beauty. And Caroline, I think you mentioned before, I don't know if you want to talk on that a little bit about like what Sleeping Beauty like represents and how, yeah. Right, right. So Sleeping Beauty has the least amount of lines of any Disney princess in her film. Like everything happens at her whim, but she doesn't say a lot. Like she doesn't speak a lot. It's her movie. You know, she's the star, but like. Yeah, I just think it's really interesting that, like, everything that she achieved was because, like, the prince defeated the dragon, and the fairies helped her out. There's nothing that she, like, she just sits back and is like, oh, all this is happening. Okay, Monica, literally, with her. Yeah, Jotaro, king again. There we go. Gotta get my (laughs) shout out for him. (laughs) So, you know, in this moment, when it's like, break the controller, don't break the controller, like, everyone's talking at you, like, Kamara's trying to decide what's you know what to do Kotoko appears in this scene and then is trying to be like no don't break the controller I don't want to lose all my friends like blah 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 um and like what like 
those are your friends like the helmet wearing brainwashed kids that that's okay but anyway kotoko says please leave me just some hope i'll even settle for just a little and then toko responds what hope you really think there's hope for you guys which is like kind of a good question so i wanted to pose the question to this group um is there any hope for these kids can i ask for clarification hope in what hope to get better hope for a future like or is that like part of your question i guess um maybe i think hope for a future yeah is something that i would want to talk about because yeah like hope hope for a future because here's the thing i will say the the implication towards the end of this game is that Masaru, Jotaro, and Nagisa, and then also Kotoko, are alive. Wait, what? They're, they, yeah, they're alive. So there is, um, it's actually in the epilogue, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but when Byakuya and Makoto are talking to each other in the epilogue, Byakuya says to Makoto that there are, um, the, like, the four captives or whatever are safe, thanks to the relative of that idiot that we know so well. She's a lot more useful than him, blah, blah, blah. And I'm 99.9% certain that he is saying that Hiroko, the relative of the idiot Yasuhiro, is the one who like supposedly rescued the, the four kids. And there's also a picture of those four kids um, in the ending credits where they're all standing together and they look kind of battered and like, beaten up and confused but they're all i don't know where they are but the four of them are together interesting so if there hadn't been that picture i wouldn't be so sure because hiroko throughout the game is looking for the captives such as kamaru the people who were taken captive by the kids you know to to hurt the so i would have taken captives to be like the four people who are still alive from you know because a lot of those people on the hit list cards are are dead um their status is like hunted or whatever um so for the stink bug yeah <laughs> that's so interesting okay yeah interesting i think it's great that they are still alive because like Me that would have been so sad oh gosh yeah yeah um hope for the, their future i want to say yes they're so young that i think that there is room for them to make a better life and the world is horrible obviously as we see it it's like freaking apoc- apocalyptic you know and i think that you know, with her, I mean, I believe in Hiroko as a nurse, and as a person, that she can, like, you know, get him back going the right way. I think the way that we treat children who commit crimes is very different than how we treat adults who commit crimes. And so I think that there is a lot more hope for these kids than there would have been for adults in this scenario. Um, yeah. I will say, like, kind of like what Caroline said, I, I want there to be hope, but at the same time, like, the crimes they committed should not be overlooked. I think that the kids have caused a lot of grief to a lot of people, and whether they knew what they were doing really or not, they do have to take responsibility for their actions, you know? Like, you can't just say, oh, I didn't know what I was doing, or I was being told to do this, so I just did it. However, I think if, like Caroline said, they got to a place mentally, you know, maybe through the help of S-tier Hiroko, and got to a place (laughs) of stability, like, I think that, I think that's great, and I think that, you know, you shouldn't, say that they can't have a future because they were taken advantage of my last note this is my last like big note of the um of the chapter of the game actually except for one small thing but and i just kind of want to share 
my thoughts on this one part of the game it's you know goes back to the break the controller don't break the controller moment which is arguably in my opinion i think like the climactic moment of the game what is interesting to me in this scene is that so when kamaru was finally like shown her supposedly like dead parents and you eventually have no choice but to choose break the controller toko stops her from doing that you know like kamaru's about to break the controller she says like i'm sorry i'm not strong enough or whatever and like toko stops her and i have to say i really i like a lot of the character development that kamaru goes through but i think the ultimate character development um, like if she had really shown true maturity in this moment she would have been to you know still not break the controller and um you know she's still young and i think this scene just is like she still has a ways to go and that's okay. But what this made me think of this moment is that, you know, Toko is kind of coming in as the one who's actually saving the day, I-, I would argue. And I think that's kind of evidence that in some ways she is the true protagonist of this story and not Kamaru. Yeah, I, I have mad Toko love after this game, I will say. Um, and like her character development is amazing too. And her decision at the end to like, keep protecting Kamaru even though Monica like dangles the key to Byakuya's room like right in front of her face um and she says no I'm gonna protect both another theme of that you know kind of idea of choosing both um but I was so proud of her I was so proud of Toko because the old Toko would have ditched everything and everyone for her master but this Toko was like no 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 you don't get to manipulate me like that like she was like Kamaru is important to me too and I just mad respect you know and so yeah, I think Kamaru goes through good character development, but I think Toko's character arc is way better. And because we already know her from the previous game, and she's really the one who kind of saves the day, like I, in some ways, I feel like Toko is the real protag of this game. I want to say that this game follows a uh, theatrical structure of, there is like a, okay, so in most stories, there is like the char- main character has a goal to get the carrot at the end of the story. I don't know why my teachers always taught it that way. It's the carrot. I don't know why. Um, but like the carrot at the end of the stick. Like right, and it's they're chasing it throughout <laughs> the whole story. This um, story, I think, has two arcs. So it's like Wicked, for example. So the Act One is Kamaru's character development, and then Act Two is Toko. Right? It like yes, they're growing alongside each other. It's not like when one is like more present that the other just disappears like there are small changes throughout that we see obviously but I, like wicked alphabet's transformation happens a lot in act one and there is in act two as well but glinda really comes forth in act two and her heart really changes in act two and both of them are the protagonists of that story right and i think this is a good example of of having two protagonists that change alongside each other but the act one is kamaru you know, and then the scene happens at the shrine, and that's the climactic moment for Kamaru's arc. And then Toko's climactic moment is in Act Two. So here's the plot twist for the century. Um, I it's about to be a shout out for Kamaru. I think her character arc continues over the entire game, and I think I would say they are protagonists. I know that's probably a cop out, but I don't think it has to kind of divide. With Kamaru in the second half, her growth is more like first half, it's I can't make any decisions, you know, I have to rely on Toko to do everything. And then in the second half, it's 
I don't have to do everything. I can make decisions, but I don't have to rely on myself to do that. Like she needed to see that she could rely on other people. She can be her own person with friends to support her along the way. Because like, I think in the first half, she's like uber supportive. Like I make no decisions. Let's do whatever. But then like, I like to call it the Harry Potter protagonist when um, it's the protagonist who can't accept help. And it's horrible to watch. I I don't like Harry Potter as a protagonist because <laughs> I find him very annoying. And I think that that second half of Kamara's development where it's like, I can accept help. I'm going to need support from friends is very necessary to make her a more likable person. Fair. I mean, that's why I said like, even Toko says like, there's that snap shift after that scene. Like, it's like, like, I don't hate Kamaru except for the one comment about Harjri after that scene in chapter four, I guess. Like, that sounds so horrible. I don't hate Kamaru, but like, you know what I mean? Speaking of Toko's growth, she says a quote, um, like right around the final, final boss battle, um, when Kamaru's kind of like found her place and, you know, accepted help and like grown and it's grand and glorious. And um, Toko says, I finally found it, a hope to call my own um, in support of Komaru. And I wanted to nominate that for the title of this episode, A Hope to Call My Own, because like, oh, it was just so nice. And I think it kind of reflected that like in the first game, maybe Toko didn't find hope through Makoto. Like she, I mean, she kind of poked fun at Makoto throughout. And so I don't think she really like respected him as a leader. Um, Whereas this time she's like, this is it you know I find my hope in you and I I was like oh my heart yeah I mean this last scene with the two of them is just like oh gosh it's like so satisfying and I'm so glad that they have each other and it's so cute um and I also agree. I have a comment that just says Shirakuma you little rascal <laughs> in response to that reveal never trusted that bear I never did either but also the surprise appearance at the end of this game of Marin's one true love. <laughs> I wrote, it's Izuru, OMG, the love of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Izuru Kamakura. Yeah. No, um, I actually will say that I wasn't that surprised when that happened. Um, I really thought that Izuru Kamakura was going to make an appearance. I don't know why, but I really, really was like, I think Izuru is involved here somehow. Yeah, but it was cool to see. <laughs> we all get our get to see our husbands at the end because Nagito, you know, is helping Monica. And I, I really like that he says nothing's really changed because he's not wrong, but also everything has changed. You know what I mean? It's like just that little it has changed a lot of different things and then also i have a note that just says biaka you're my sexy husband and i'll have a little letter that line when he's like you're right toko my feelings of disgust towards you will never change i was like ah! like I, I like convulsed i was so i have one more note the last word spoken in this game is toki <laughs> And if Izuru hadn't popped out before that, I would have been very disappointed with that choice. Toki! (laughs) Oh, God. You have to wait up for me, Toki! I was like, oh, gosh. (laughs) All right, we're ready for the anime now. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right, everybody, we are going to move into our modified bed web ahead for today's episode. And today we're going to be choosing between all of our favorite husbandos who showed up at the end of the game, Izaru, Nagito, and Byakuya. And we are going to be deciding whether we would want to crochet a sweater for them, sing a duet in a cabaret with them, or be an interior designer with them. I actually have my answers. Please okay. go. So I would be an interior designer with Byakuya. He's got the funds. I could make a room transform with that man's uh, wallet. So definitely, <laughs> definitely that. Um, <laughs> I would knit a sweater for Nagito because he would keep it. Um, he would he would definitely love to receive anything <laughs> from anyone, I feel like. I guess I'm assuming I'm an ultimate in this scenario. But um, yeah, I, I would knit him a, a nice sweater. And then I would sing a duet in cabaret with Izaru because I just want to see what that would be like. And I'm assuming <laughs> he's forced to do this in this scenario. So he couldn't just be like, no, I'm mysterious. You know, like, oh, yeah, I, I love that. <laughs> okay, I also have my answer. I would knit a, sorry, crochet a sweater for Nagito, honestly, for the same reason. I think he just kind of needs a hug and a sweater is like a nice wearable hug and you know and that, there you go and he can match with his little mitten um and then the I would sing a duet with Ezer I guess I have the same answer as you because I think out of all of them he probably has the best voice he just looks like a good singer um and then the that sounds horrible just <laughs> 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 looks like a good singer um and then but I have a very big justification for why I would choose Byakuya to be my interior designing partner. And that's because we would work together. So we would see each other every day of the week and I would have him in my life all the time for potential, you know, hanging out. <laughs> interior design and chill. <laughs> and chill. <laughs> I have a different answer, actually. I would, for the same reasons that you just said, Caroline, I would be interior. I would be on the interior design team with Nagito. Um, I think that would just be an interesting time. We'd get to know each other. Um, we'd vibe or we would not vibe. I don't know how that would go, but I just think that would be really interesting. You know, I think it'd be a good time. I would sing a duet with Byakuya because not going to lie, I feel like he probably can sing. I, and I, I also feel like, <laughs> I also feel like I would be too scared to crochet him a sweater because I think he'd hate it because I probably wouldn't do a very good job. Um, <laughs> So I'd just be very intimidated to give him something. Izuru might be the same way, but I would crochet a sweater for Izuru because I also think he needs a hug, you know, and maybe it wouldn't be a good sweater because I don't know how to crochet. And I, if I learned, I'd probably be really bad at it. But like, at least he wouldn't find it boring, you know, if it was like a really bad one, but like funky colors. I feel like he'd take your sweater and say nothing and you'd never know if he liked it or not. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> Maybe I'd rather have Byakuya just insult it then. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that's, that's, those are my answers. All right, everybody. Thank you for being on this wild ride of ultra despair girls with us. We had a good time chatting about it and getting to delve deep into this game. Um, if you want to have more Ultra Hope Girls content, we upload a Patreon episode every week that we don't upload an episode here. So you can subscribe to our Patreon. The link is in the episode description. And if you want to follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, we're Ultra Hope Girls Podcast everywhere. It's a great way to show your support. And we love to vibe with you guys on there. It's a really good time. 
And if you have any questions for us that you want us to answer or feature in an episode at the end of the season, you can leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm. The link is also in the episode description for that. And that is a wrap on Ultra Despair Girls. And we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. <laughs>